Drunken, <laughs> asshole, <Sure>. genius, <laughs> Sam Peckinpah, somehow yeah, managed to squeeze those, out a genius I, movie. I guess he's all those things. I still can't get over that he smelled like poop. <laughs> Welcome to episode 201 of Film Generations, the podcast previously known as Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers to see if it still plays to today's generation. It's a brand new season with a whole new set of exciting classic movies coming up. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker, instructor at the Los Angeles Film School, and co-founder and CEO of Electricast Media. Hi, my name is Grace Chapman. I'm a writer and wardrobe stylist. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I am an aspiring journalist, and I also now newly work in PR as well. Hi, I'm Guy Lewis. I'm a student at the Los Angeles Film School, and I like Westerns. I'm David Tausick. I'm co-host here, and I'm very, very excited about this second season of Film Generations, or are we Generations? I don't know. What are we called? <laughs> we are Film Generations in order to best differentiate ourselves from other podcasts out there that have stolen our name. <laughs> stolen our name by having it first, in one case. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so this past week, we watched legendary director Sam Peckinpah's landmark 1969 Western, The Wild Bunch. Famous for reaching new levels of on-screen violence, the story is an elegy for the closing of the American West, with an aging gang of outlaws taking on one last heist while being relentlessly pursued by paid mercenaries from the big banks, including one of their former gang members. But while the film's violence, particularly the slow-motion accented shootouts that open and close the film, were shocking for their time, after appropriation by filmmakers like Martin Scorsese and Quentin Tarantino, well, does this movie still have the same impact? Let's dig in. Of everybody here, who saw The Wild Bunch for the first time? Me. Oh my God. Okay, so that's everybody except for us. I'm going to start with Grace. Well, I kind of had a hard time following it in the beginning. I couldn't really differentiate the two groups. I was like, which one's which? They're after who? But I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. But the gunshots, I don't know. There's so much violence and it was just a little too much for me at some times. I just really don't like the sound of gunshots. <laughs> I thought the shootouts went on for too long. Uh, which they are known for going on very long. Mm -hmm. One note was that Peckinpah got all new gunshot sounds for every that. single gun that went off. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't uh, like the stock sounds. Kylie, how about you? I liked it. Um, with Grace, I kind of had a difficult time following the first half. But then once we got to the train heist, I just fell in love with the rest of the movie. I was just hooked in. I do kind of love a lot of violent movies. So for <laughs> me, this one was really fun to kind of see where basically like violence and film really started. Hmm. Yeah, I immediately liked this movie. I liked the whole setup. Loved how uh, how it ended. There's a couple spots where the movie kind of kind of stopped, but once it was back on with the train and the the final scene, it was what you wanted to see. The train heist was like the biggest thing for me, and there, like the tension fully built. I got to see all the really interesting edits happening. I thought that was just a masterclass in tension, and I for the first time saw these crazy, horrible criminals really have each other's backs, and even though they were not super cohesive the very first heist we saw in the opening scene this is the first time i felt like i got to see their true bond and then i believe the character who was chasing them was pike uh pike is the leader of the gang the guy chasing them is deke thornton yes him and that's when i just felt like 
I saw everyone's relationships truly bloom and I got to understand them and see the dynamics of the relationships between the group and then Thornton. Hmm. So Grace, you said you were confused at the beginning. I, I completely understand you being confused, but I'm wondering what it is that you felt when you saw those opening images. Well, the scorpion being attacked by the red ants was a huge sensory overload for me. It was a really cool shot, but I just felt so bad for the scorpion. (laughs) But if I was a kid, I'd probably be doing the same thing. (laughs) But yeah, them dressed as soldiers just confused me. I was like, are they the bounty hunters? What the hell is going on? But what really got me sucked back in was when Angel shot his ex-lover and he was like, puta! <laughs> it was not funny, but it, it made me laugh. And the general just didn't even care that his lover was dead. He was like, oh, you're not trying to shoot me? That's fine. I was like, <laughs> you don't care this lady's dead? All right. I want to dive into something that you're bringing up right here. And that's the whole question of how women are depicted and treated in this movie. Some have accused Peckinpah of misogyny. Some people think that it's probably realistic to the 1913 era when it was taking place. But what was your feeling about it as a woman watching it? Well, I thought it was probably pretty realistic to the time. It didn't offend me. I just thought it was kind of funny, sadly, (laughs) Um, just because it's not real. So it didn't really upset me. The movie's more about the men anyway. So I had a feeling going into it, the women weren't going to be represented that well. And yeah, they just made her seem like an evil harlot that deserved to die, but that's expected. (laughs) Uh, Okay. All right. Did you feel anything for the men as far as their story went? I guess, yeah, I wanted the outlaws to succeed. I didn't want them to get caught. And I also felt really bad for the leader of the bounty hunters because he just kept saying, like, I wish I was with them because he was with a bunch of those losers. <laughs> and I just really felt for him. I was like, just go join them. Just run off, be a criminal. <laughs> but he gave his word. But to who? That's kind of the point of the movie, right? Mm-hmm. This movie, it's cool, but it's not as cool as other Westerns that I've seen. And, and I appreciate what Peggy Bob was trying to do with the whole bloody landscape i mean this movie's still great but it just seems like it was like a little too over the top like that first bank robbery scene they threw the guy at the window to get it all started and then bang 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 everyone's dead and then you know they get away and then the disappointment right after that um that was all perfect you know that was like a movie in itself but you try to do it again and again and you know hmm. how many times can you see a guy get shot <laughs> you know but uh, you can see with like movies like John Wick and anything that Schwarzenegger, Stallone has done, you can see that their body counts, where that all got started from, you know. My question is, how much of the movie's reputation rests on the violence versus the other aspects of the film as well? I want to go back to Kylie. My favorite scene in the movie by far is the railroad heist. And mm-hmm. for me, the way it works is that the opening is just shocking, but it's not just shocking because of the violence. It's kind of what Grace was pointing out, that you don't know who the good guys are. The people who are supposed to be the good guys up on the roof protecting the bank or the railroad or whatever the hell they're protecting, they're the ones who start shooting people in the town who are in the temperance rally. 
you know, the wild bunch aren't deliberately targeting them and they're not shooting wild. They seem to be aiming at what they're shooting at. But, you know, they're not good guys because they're robbing a bank, which leads to all this trouble. They are the one who set it off in a sense. Right. So there's this moral quandary at the beginning, like, who am I supposed to like? And I think this movie is one of these center of good movies where everybody's bad. So you kind of go to the least bad. And those are the ones you care about. So they blow the first heist. And then the end of the movie is kind of a wild, last gasp, nihilistic kind of bloodbath. The one place where they really show they know how to do their jobs is when they rob the train. Mm -hmm. And it's a relief that these guys aren't just clowns. Like they really have their shit together when they're prepared. So Kylie, I don't know if that was part of what was exciting to you about that or. It was that tension it was that excitement it was finally having someone to root for to get something done and this is our chance to root for them and I literally was sweating my armpits were sweating when I was watching it I was just like please 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 like let go of the little train hook I don't even know how trains worked I don't even know exactly what they were trying to do <laughs> until they did it but I knew I wanted it to happen and it was just so good and all the intercutting, however many cuts that was, I didn't even attempt to count. Mm. I just saw what pros these filmmakers were in like 68. And I was like, okay, yeah, this is why cinema changed after because of people who had these abilities technically behind the camera and in post-production. And yeah, it's just, I fell in love with it at that part. And I could watch that scene over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, one of my favorite shots in the entire movie is when Ernest Borgnine playing Dutch, his head comes up over at the top of the train and the soldier turns and sees him holding the gun on him and, <laughs> and he just smiles. I mean, I've seen it in theaters where everybody just claps and applauds and goes crazy. I really liked at the end when everyone was laying there dead and the bounty hunters came up. I think someone just mentioned before that like vultures or buzzards or something. And then the bounty hunters came and you see them taking everyone's shoes, taking whatever they can, like vultures. But I just thought that was hilarious seeing them like pick everything off of the dead bodies. But that was one other scene that stuck out with me besides the chase and the heist. There's obviously humor there. And, you know, the bounty hunters arguing over who saw somebody first. And, <laughs> mm -hmm. and you mentioned earlier, too, when Angel's girlfriend, when he shoots her, you say, well, it's not real. Did you feel that the film was more real than other Westerns, less real than other Westerns, or kind of the same? I wasn't around for the Wild West, but I had a feeling this portrayed it in a more honest light, like not romanticizing it, because it must have been very brutal and violent back then. And from other Westerns I've seen, you don't really see the brutality after the shootout. You just see the shootout, and then the next scene, you don't see the aftermath. So in that sense, I thought it was pretty realistic. What about the texture of the movie? Everything from the cinematography, the dustiness, the costumes, the faces, Native Mexicans being used as extras as opposed mm -hmm. to Hollywood extras. I mean, they did shoot down in Mexico, so. Yeah, that made it feel very real. And the, the texture seemed, I mean, vintage because it was made in the 60s, but it did have a, a feeling of realism with the costumes, too. Like everyone was dirty and they just did an excellent job, I think, transporting you back to that time. Hmm. Guy, what about you? Favorite scenes besides the opening shootout? The opening shootout was dope. Uh, the train heist was also pretty cool how they put it together. Like uh, when Angel was laying in the water 
thing. Like that was so brilliant. Cool. You know, it's like a really, mm-hmm. really smart place to hide. I liked how they brought in like because this was like supposed to be like right before World War One, right? This takes place in 1913, from what I've read. Okay, so World, World War One starts yeah. in 1914. 1914. And- yeah, and you know, so to see the car, there's a, there's a car in the Wild West. I thought that was kind of neat. And then the gallon gun, and there's like, put it on a tripod. And the guy was like, no, I'm not putting it on a tripod. And he started shooting all <laughs> wild and crazy. <laughs> and it went kind of long for a while. Like, just let go of the trigger, you know? <laughs> right? And then at the end of that, he goes, hey, put it on the tripod. I, I, that, I, I like that. I thought it was pretty funny. And I don't try to sound creepy or weird or anything like that, but the scene where the two dudes and the, the three prostitutes, and they were in a wine barrel, oh. like inside the wine barrel, like just hanging out. And I just kept going like, is somebody going to drink that wine afterwards? I, I mean, like, how much, how much <laughs> money are they wasting? me. Isn't, some, isn't somebody going to be upset? Aren't they in trouble? But uh, but they start by shooting holes in the cask, and they're all yeah. like getting a wine shower. Yeah, I'm like yeah. no one wanted to check on it. Like, how did no one go? Like, why are they firing? Like, oh. yeah, it's, I guess you could just shoot in the Wild West, and no one would look yeah. look up. You know, just like bah, bah, bah. that's nothing. Just playing with guns, guy. I thought because you said you don't want to be creepy. I thought you were going to talk about the breastfeeding shot because that was crazy to me when they showed the woman feeding her child and then they just like zoom out. I thought that was crazy. Oh, that was out of nowhere. That was really cool. Is it her child? True. Is it a random True. extra? Yeah. Like, I, I thought about that too. I was just like, mm. how did they do this? Mm-hmm. Is there a form signed? Was just this gorilla <laughs> was like, there's no intimacy coordinator then. So like, whose baby is it? Whose mom is it? Was she actually breastfeeding? Like I remember, I just like, I stopped watching the movie thinking yeah. like, whose baby is it? Yeah. <laughs> just immediately, immediately went to work. You know what I'm saying? Just clocked in. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to guess it's her baby that someone... He found on or near the set. And I hope so. <laughs> I mean, the, the film had that kind of neorealist thing, right? All these people that don't really seem like, exactly like they're actors. They're just interesting faces that he finds and puts them in, and it, you know, right out of Italian films from the 50s. There's this really nice scene where I think it's Pike is talking to the old man in the town, and when they're leaving, it's almost like a parade or maybe like a funeral like a funeral march where everybody has lined the dirt road as the wild bunch are going out there handing them i think flowers or or little gifts and things and the music i think the sound is unbelievable in the movie and there's this beautiful mexican music that's playing and it's very wistful and you kind of already are getting a feeling these guys maybe aren't coming back and there's something about that scene that I think gives the movie so much more weight and gravity than if it was just a shoot 'em up. Yeah, there's a lot more going on than just a typical Western with heightened violence. It's a complicated movie, actually. They probably know they'll never see them again. It's the Wild West, so you don't usually run into people once you leave them. Mm. And I think whether or not they totally knew they were going to die, they probably just knew they'd never see them again. And knowing who they are, the Wild Bunch, it's not likely that they'd really make it much longer and their luck is going to run out sometime. Mm. Yeah, I feel that. Okay. Question for everybody here. If you haven't looked already, William Holden, the lead actor in the movie, how old do you think he is when this movie is being made? At least 50. I'm going to say like 60. Yeah, at least 50. I was going to say 27. (laughs) 
I have a feeling that he's not as old as he looks. He was, <laughs> he was a hard drinking guy. Yeah, and people just looked older back then because yes, people like smoked indoors. He's, and- <laughs> he's 23. He was fi- <laughs> almost, he was 51 years old. Wow. Borgnine was 52, and Edmund O'Brien, the old guy, 54. Wow. I feel like they're all older than me, which they're not. (laughs) Ernest Borgnine, I know I've like, I know he was younger because I've heard his voice in kid shows when I was younger. Mm -hmm. But then I saw a video of him like speaking about it like decades later, and he only looked like maybe seven years older. I was just like, I'm so confused by this timeline of these people. He lived a long time. Yeah, he had a long, long career. And even when he was young, he didn't look very young. And then he just kept going and going and going. <laughs> when I was a kid, he had a show called McHale's Navy. He was the star of this show. And this was like a prime time sort of sitcom, I guess. Half, it was Navy. a half hour Navy sitcom. Yeah, right. It, it was a big popular show. Yeah, no, it was a black and white sitcom. And Peckinpah didn't want to hire him at first because he thought everyone would just identify him with McHale's Navy. I don't know about you guys. He's my favorite character in the movie. Me too. And so here's my take. He's kind of a psychopath, right? Doesn't he seem like a psychopath? Well, he's a psychopath with a heart of gold. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, the thing that the, the movie's really about, right, is loyalty. It's about this idea that in a world that's totally shitty, where the good guys are bad guys and the bad guys are just a little bit better, but maybe not that much, what do you have to hold on to? And the only thing you have to hold on to is your loyalty to whoever you're in an enterprise with, your partners, right? And that's what gets tested all the way through the movie. I think that when you get to a certain age, you can relate to the character of Pike having to get up on his horse by himself in order to maintain his authority with the team. If he was not able to get up on that horse in that early scene after he falls off this out of the stirrup, those guys would be gone. Yeah, the Gorch brothers would probably take over the whole gang, right? That made me so sad. I know. It's like, he, it just broke. It wasn't yeah, his it wasn't fault. his fault. <laughs> Guy, you pointed out, there's a car that shows up. And I think William Holden's character, Pike, is the only one who's ever seen a car before. And even tells him about airplanes. And they're like, what? <laughs> so it is this closing of the West kind of thing. And I think the double duty the movie does is that it's the closing of the West and it's the end of the studio system. You know, the year before the ratings board basically was created so that they could make this movie and give it an R rating so kids couldn't go in without a parent. They couldn't have made the movie otherwise. The year before the movie was made, two years before it came out, Jack Warner finally left Warner Brothers, was no longer running it anymore. And you got these guys who came out of the studio system like all those actors, all the older actors came out of the studio system. William Holden won the Oscar for Best Actor for Stylock 17, a Billy Wilder movie. Ernest Borgnine won Best Actor for Marty, which was a TV play that was adapted into a feature film. Super low budget. Edmund O'Brien had been around since the 30s. Robert Ryan, who I've always liked, has been around since I think the 40s, playing tough guy. So it was kind of like a farewell song to a different world. And, you know. and also Warren Oates and Ben Johnson, part of the eternal cast of Westerns for John Ford and all the other big Western directors. I mean, I, I don't know how many Westerns Ben Johnson did, but, I mean, you know, yeah. 50, 60, I mean, maybe yeah. 100, I don't know. He plays Tector Gorch, the brother with the pointy beard. John Ford made him a star. He had been a rodeo writer. 
And if you ever see an old John Ford movie called Wagon Master, he's terrific in the lead. Very young, very handsome. Not a great actor in that period, but then he wins the Oscar two years after this movie for Best Supporting Actor in Last Picture Show. His big so, break. Before that, he had really just been the character actor. So here's another question for everybody out there. What is the thing with children in this movie? There's a number of times where kids are involved, never put in danger themselves, because Peckinpah said he could never do that to a kid, never see a kid in jeopardy. But you see children at the beginning, we see children in the middle, we see children play acting, and then Pike is ultimately killed by a child, right? Um, I think children kind of are a rebirth, but also like the only thing that morally grounds the audience with all the gore, because especially in the first scene with the shootout, I never thought of like, yeah, kids in the Wild West. I just never thought about that because why would kids be in the Wild West? It's a bunch of outlaws. Who would do that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the cameo from Grace's cat. <laughs> Sorry. Grace's cat appears this again. This is the only time she wants to hang out with me is when I'm <laughs> recording this. No, it's perfect. It's the innocent bystander. I love it. <laughs> no, I'm glad you brought the kids. You know, I love all those shots of the kids. And to me, they're not just innocent. I mean, the kids are very violent. Yeah, torturing. Yeah, at the very beginning, yeah. they're watching the ants devour the scorpions and they're laughing. <laughs> and then I think they set them on fire. Isn't that a whole metaphor for the end of the movie, though? Like, basically, at the end, like, the wild bunch of the scorpions and everybody's coming at them like ants and the whole thing's on fire. I really feel that there are several shots in the movie that are saying that violence is just such an intrinsic part of being a human being that even these little kids are already quite violent and quite comfortable with violence from a very, very young age. And the other thing I want to say is that he, did, he does an incredible job of casting and shooting these kids. Because there's not a false moment with the kids, as far as I'm concerned. Usually when I see kids in a movie, I'm like, eh, you know, nine-year-old little Billy took acting lessons and he got thrown in the scene. And I don't believe it. These weren't Disney Channel kids. (laughs) No, but he did a very good job finding kids that really were acting very naturally. Mm -hmm. Grace, I know you did some research about the times when the movie came out. Yes. So in the late 1960s, the U.S. faced intense social and political turbulence because of the Vietnam War. And many young Americans were expressing anti-establishment sentiments, just really angry that their tax dollars were funding an unjust war. And the use of violence, I think, really reflected that. It resonated with uh, shifting societal attitudes towards violence in the media and entertainment. And the film's Themes, portrayal of violence, morality, and the era's conclusion were directly aligned with the late 1960s social and political climate. I thought it was an interesting parallel between the two times. Yeah, I mean, a huge time of change, a huge Mm -hmm. time of strife. I mean, David and I kind of remember when this movie came out, I was nine years old. And I remember thinking about Vietnam every day. Well, it was on the news every day. Mm -hmm. Body count and the, the pictures. But didn't like everybody knew somebody who had gone over or someone who had just narrowly missed getting drafted? Or I was worried about, was the war going to still be on when I was of draft age? In my neighborhood, there were protests about the war all the time. And also just that year was an incredible year for movies. That was when Midnight Cowboy came out, uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Just really incredible year. The the moon landing, Charles Manson. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big year, 69. Mm -hmm. 68 and 69 are big, Mm -hmm. big years. 
you have this period of like 1967, let's say, maybe a little earlier, but you know, 66, 67 to like 72, 74, where you have this incredible change in movies from year to year. You know, in 1967, you have Bonnie and Clyde, which has a, an equally bloody ending, uh, like a 10-minute sequence of people being machine-gunned you know, with every squib exploding blood. And that's two years before this movie. Well, And you know, the story about Sam Peckinpah was that his career was in the toilet. And he goes to see Bonnie and Clyde, and he walked out and he said, I can do that. Yeah, maybe something he had wanted to do and wasn't quite, couldn't quite do it. I tried to look up the relationship between him and Sergio Leone. I think the first Spaghetti Western he makes is 66. And then like 68 and 69, I think, if I have the years right, where he makes his trilogy, Spaghetti Westerns. And that was a similar project to this in that it was trying to get rid of the kind of over-romanticizing of the West and the squeaky clean costumes and trying to show it as a down and dirty place where people didn't have much money. And this film borrows a lot from that. I don't know if this film could have been made without those, maybe. I mean, Peckinpah himself maybe influenced Leone by making Major Dundee and The Westerner, which is a TV series. So is your question kind of about the influence or? Yeah. Like you said, you're seeing the rating system come in because the studios are ready to make more violent films. Partly they're competing with TV. And so they have to have a little more sex and violence because that's the one thing you can't show on television in those days. The thing that's interesting to me about The Wild Bunch is I think it's filled with contradictions. So... Uh, it's a movie that makes you feel like you're in the Old West, but it's cut in a very modern style. Like these these kind of flash cuts and going back and forth of the slow-mo. He's cranking the camera 120 frames a second, 96 frames. So there's something really modern going on there. And the violence stands out. You know, everyone talked about that when it came out. And very few people focused on the other aspects of the movie. And I think the movie is very literary in a certain way. I think it feels like a novel. The story is so well-constructed you almost don't even notice it. Gang goes for a big heist, completely fails. They're down and out. They have to escape to Mexico and they get a chance to redeem themselves with one more heist. And maybe then they can finally retire. And by the way, none of these guys have retirement plans that make any sense at all, if they even have anything, right? <laughs> and I'm hoping that you guys all saw the restored director's cuts around 145 minutes. They cut out all the flashbacks when it first came out. So you didn't realize that Pike had had a a relationship with a woman in the past. There's this whole literary aspect of the movie that's about the end of the era. And you, know, you talk about, David, the Sergio Leone movies de-romanticizing. I think that those and The Wild Bunch both create a new romanticism. It's sort of like Chinatown, which takes apart all the tropes of the 1940s movies and shows you what's behind the curtain, but creates its own romantic pull so that we want to watch it over and over again. Yeah, I agree. And there's something very romantic about these guys and their bond for each other and how we go from at the beginning going like, who's the good guy? Who are these guys? These guys seem really rough with each other. They're, they're kind of awful. By the end, we're, I mean, the other most amazing moment to me in this movie is when they make the decision to go and save Angel. And it's a really interesting sequence. You know, you've got Pike who has just slept with a young woman and Again, to kind of make it real, there's a baby in the corner, (laughs) (laughs) you know, sex in the room with her while the baby was there. He's giving her, I think, all his gold or a bunch of his gold. Not all of it. Not all of it. But he (laughs) he walks into the next room and it's my favorite exchange in the whole movie. Let's go. Why not? 
and they come outside and no movie today would do this. They would do lots of cuts of them putting guns in the holster and close-ups in this. It's just a nice, super long shot as they get their guns and they load up and you can really see how they're putting everything together. And my heart is beating faster and faster. And then they start that long walk, which is so legendary. And then he just looks down at Dutch and Dutch has just been sitting, Dutch, Dutch is asexual, right? Because he only loves Pike. So he's sitting there <laughs> leaning against the wall, just whittling. And as soon as he sees Pike, he gets that Ernest Borgnine grin again. And we're like, oh yeah, baby, come on. And then they go and they strap on and they go in there. And I think it's its own huge romantic myth. It's just saying, you know, that myth from those John Wayne movies, because True Grit came out the same year and John Wayne hated the Wild Bunch. He said, I spent my whole life building up these myths and they're tearing it down with this one movie. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, maybe I shouldn't even say uh, that they de-romanticized it, that Leone and Peck and well, they, they are, do and they don't, right? They, they, they tear something down to build something new. They're certainly desanitizing it. Yeah. That's one thing they're doing. Yeah, and you look at Star Wars, right? One of the big innovations of Star Wars and science fiction movies is everything looked dirty. You know, Luke's cruiser has got dirt on it. And it's, well, he got that from Sergio Leone. I mean, there's no question about it. Anyway, I, I guess that's just my argument. It's just that it's a different type of romanticism. It's a different type of myth that's been created, and which is very much what the end of the 60s was like, right? Yes, you're right. You know, the, the good guy wasn't necessarily the guy that went off to war. It might have been the guy that was protesting the war. That's actually a great thought, that the 60s was a time of tearing down old myths and putting up new ones right away. The critic John Simon, who was a super hard-ass, right, in the 70s, said, yeah, everyone thinks everything's been demystified. It's all been remystified in a new way. And I think we do it over and over again. I just feel like the Wild Bunch feels more authentic to me than a lot of stuff that's come afterwards. And, and I don't think it's just the art direction. I don't think it's just the incredible photography at all that. I think there's something about the morals of these guys. Well, there's a lot of things that go to it. I mean, one thing is every movie, the good guy has to pet the dog and then the bad guy kicks the dog and then you know who's who. And in this movie, everyone's kicking the dog. No, no. There's a <laughs> no? moment in the opening scene. Yeah. Anyone remember? Where the wild bunch basically, quote unquote, pet the dog. Oh, they have the old lady uh, across, oh, across the street. Well, I thought that was them just trying to play off being soldiers. I didn't really think they were being genuine about it. They were just trying to blend in and be like, we're, we're good guys. That's how I took it, too, because mm -hmm. uh, you think they're soldiers at first, at least mm -hmm. I did. And they're walking the old lady and you think, okay, here are the good guys. And then the next thing, I mean, the holdup is not like a friendly holdup. It's a pretty brutal holdup. They don't kill anyone right away, but they've got everyone scared out of their wits in the bank. And you feel like they could shoot those people at any moment. Well, you know, the line that plays right before Sam Peckinpah's credit on William Holden. Is it if they move, kill him? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's not petting the dog. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's, it's, I don't know, that's part of why the movie's complex, right? I told you, it's like a lot of contradictions in the movie. All right. What about the making of the movie? I think, Kylie, we had you do some research on that. Yes. So as we know, directed, also written by Peck and Paw with Wallen Green. Um, so it had a budget of $6 million that I forgot to adjust for inflation. So more expensive than that. Um, it was shot in 81 grueling, horrible days that literally everybody hated in Mexico. I believe it was just over 1,200 camera setups during the, the shoot of the film. And there was about, I think, 250,000 yards of film, or sorry, feet of film. 
that was filmed on that set. I think most of the stories that I found about the making of it was how almost every actor threatened to beat up Peckinpah (laughs) and how the actors also said, if you yell at the crew anymore, we will beat you up. And then people complained about how Peckinpah um, always smelled like poop and alcohol. I mean, every story I just found was just about how much, like, the crew hated Peckham Paul. <laughs> Everyone was just, it was just how much they had a disdain for him. We talked about how he's so impassioned about the gun effects. So they had a bunch of squibs, right, with hamburger meat. So when oh. the squibs exploded, hamburger meat would fly out to, like, give flesh. Because Peckham Paul was like, I want the audience to feel like they're being shot at. So yeah, just the hamburger meat, the blood, the squibs, and then everyone wanting to beat up Peckinpah. One of the guys that I worked with was a stunt coordinator, a legendary guy named Walter Scott, started out in the early 60s. And he talked about being on a Peckinpah movie. I can't remember if it was this one or Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. And one actor wanted to go home for Thanksgiving. And when he comes back, Peckinpah punishes him by putting him in an incredibly stuffy costume, a really thick costume. And doesn't actually use him for any shots, just has him sit around on set outdoors all day. And I believe it went for several days. I think oh son God. of a bitch is the, is the term for a guy like that. <laughs> I still can't get over that he smelled like poop. Okay, I wasn't going to go so in detail, but like this person who hated him so much had three paragraphs of detail about that. How I guess Peckinpah had so many untreated hemorrhoids. And he was so drunk all the time. He never like fully took care of it or cleaned himself off. But because people will complain about it, he started wearing white pants. And they and they he's just like, and I'll leave it at that. Like, oh my god! Just the horror stories. I I stopped reading the article because I'm like, <laughs> I get it. Everyone hates Peck and Paw. Like, I have to move on to facts. <laughs> he sounds terrible. Yeah, I read one like good word besides being like he made great movies. <laughs> Yeah, great, great vision. Yeah. Sounds oh like God. shit. <laughs> um, we'll get back to more in a second, Sam Peckinpah. But Guy, do you have any notes on how the movie was received when it came out? Right. So we talked about what John Wayne thought about the movie. This movie was really polarizing for the time. The opening weekend, it did 638000 That's amazing for the time. Yeah, but people said it was too violent, or they thought that it was being very nihilistic, or um, people thought it was brilliant, and so it was a really polarizing movie. And like uh, Grace said, this movie came out the same year as Midnight Cowboy, Butch Cassidy, Sundance Kid, Most Fun Time in the West, uh, my favorite Western. Great one. But it wasn't listed as the top 10 movies of that time. People of that time weren't used to... A movie where everybody died. That was like a groundbreaking thing for them. Yeah, so like this movie was also praised and uh, condemned simultaneously. Nice. Nice. And I feel like we've had some mixed feelings here, so it kind of makes sense. David, you want to talk a little bit more about poop smelling, drunken... <laughs> Asshole, sure. <laughs> genius, Sam Peckinpah somehow yeah, managed to squeeze those, out a genius movie. I, I guess he's all those things. He made 14 movies, and there's a real hole in his career between 1962, when he made Ride the High Country, which is his second movie that really got him noticed as a director. Kind of a revisionist Western that sort of started this whole thing of his of 
saying, oh, the West wasn't as all-American as people say that there's a lot more going on. He could have been in a lot of demand right from there, but he didn't get to make a film again until 65, and he made a film called Major Dundee with Charlton Heston, which was a pretty big Western, but it got way out of control. He went way over budget. He pissed off Charlton Heston. He pissed off everyone in the cast. He was drunk the whole time. He would show up on set drunk, right? Oh, yeah. And, And I mean, he even said, I can't direct unless I'm drunk. Like, this is a direct quote. But the thing is, the the guy remained an alcoholic from 69 through like 77, 78, and he made a lot of great films then. So it's not like drinking incapacitated him. He became incapacitated later on when he became a cocaine addict after he made this movie Convoy. And then his career was just over. He could not drag himself to the set. It's uh, terrible. Yeah, his... I mean, he died at the age of 59. It was partly alcoholism. I think a lot of it was cocaine. He had a heart attack. I mean, there were stories about him and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, where he would be like at night standing in front of the mirror with a bottle in one hand, high on coke, and a gun in the other hand. Yeah. And naked in front of a mirror. No, he's a very, very dramatic person. Showing off his hemorrhoids. (laughs) (laughs) But he was an artist. He was making films... Differently, he had, he had some visual styles that no one else was doing. I mean, other people shot in slow motion. He didn't invent that by any means. But um, this idea of a camera shooting at 90 frames a second, another one at 60, another one at 30, another one at 24, and then just mixing the footage all together in this very personal way that he would edit it together. I mean, it really created a look that no one else had. Yeah, he had a great editor, Lou Lombardi, who also is like the unsung hero of this thing. You know, he because yes. there's not a bad cut in that movie. I don't it's think not. And, you know, he's a great editor and he did a great job, but Peckinpah set all this up. I mean, he shot all this stuff specifically to be cut in this really unique way. You know, his interest in Mexico and the way that he treated Mexico in terms of locations and the actors, almost like a neorealist fashion. He had a very, very sensitive artistic bent. And all this violence wasn't just, ah, button guts, you know. <laughs> He wasn't really about that. He really felt it was terrible that people would get shot in movies and it would be this fake gunshot sound effect they'd used in every Western since 1930. And they'd go, oh, and they'd they'd fall down. You know, you wouldn't see any blood. When people get shot, it's a horrible, horrible thing. And it's a disservice to people to just make it seem like you can shoot somebody and there's not really any consequences other than the guy goes away. Like a lot of unpleasant people, I mean, he's really, really actually very sensitive and it shows in a lot of ways in his films, I think. But he's kind of from that era where men didn't really express their feelings, you know, properly. And so he kind of is expressing it in his drunkenness and violence. And I mean, who knows what the story was with him? So to go back to Major Dundee, I think Major Dundee could have been a really great film, but the studio just cut it to pieces because he went over budget and they were mad at him anyway, and it was too long. So they just cut it up. And I think that did a number on him. And he, he didn't really get a film again until this one. I mean, this is the next film he made. It's four years later. So between 62, when he makes Ride the High Country, and 69, when he makes The Wild Bunch, there's only one film in between. And that film kind of destroyed his career for a long time. From when he makes The Wild Bunch until the next 10 years, he makes 10 movies. Virtually his entire output is during those 10 years. Yeah. Luckily for him, The Wild Bunch was a critical and commercial success. And so that led to him being able to make movies. But I don't think any of his other movies are in the league of Wild Bunch, right? Well, I mean, some I don't people know if like. I, agree. I mean, 
Bring me the um, head of Alfredo Garcia, or some people like straw dogs, which I think is really well. Straw dogs, uh, I find really movie. unpleasant. It's a super interesting movie. I don't like it, but it's kind of unignorable. Talk about misogyny and violence. It's a little hard for me to watch. Yeah, I agree. But bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. I think I even like it more than this. I think this is my second favorite Peck and Paw. Which also stars Warren Oates, who plays one of the Gooch brothers. If you at all liked this film, you have to see Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. You know, The Getaway is not a bad film. And Pat Garrett and the Billy the Kid, I think could have been a good film, but we'll never know what it would have been. If He said there's only one film that ever got released the way he wanted to be released, and that was Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. All the rest were really changed around by the studio quite a bit. Hmm. All right. Well, I think it's probably time for us to start wrapping up over here. This is the part of the show where we ask you, how do you rate the film? One to four stars. You guys know the drill. If it's going to be a four-star movie for you, it's got to be in your top 10. If it's a two and a half star, that's a B plus. And also, would you recommend this to anybody? And who would that be? I usually say I recommend every movie to everybody. You should see every movie all the time. But that being said, specifically, if you're into the action genre, then this has got to be one of the ones that you look at. This movie did some really, really good things. However, this isn't my favorite Western. And there's been other Westerns that have been made, even recently, that I think are better. So I give this a three. Three stars. A minus. Way to be. Kylie, how about you go next? I would recommend this, especially to my little brother. He is someone who loves 60s films, especially something that looks a little bit more gritty. So for him, I'd want him to see that. But also to anyone who really enjoys crazy violence, I think you do have to be able to stomach it to really enjoy the movie. It's a big part of it. Also, anyone who just wants to learn how to build tension, for sure, and how to like slowly, slowly build something like that with a big landscape and a smaller crew. Otherwise, I would give this movie a three and a half. I think it's a masterclass in a lot of ways. and It's a beginning of a new frontier of movies, I would say. Mm, that's pretty great. Grace? I totally agree with what Kylie said. I would recommend it to probably my parents. They really love Westerns. Uh, my mom actually showed me Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kids, so I wonder if she would like this. I've been meaning to ask her. Yeah, anyone who likes Westerns or action. And then I'm going to give it a three just because Westerns really aren't my genre, but it was an incredible film and it was revolutionary for film. So I can appreciate it for that. David. Well, I'm going to give it a three and a half. It could be a three. I think honestly, if I weren't a filmmaker, I might just look at it as a piece of entertainment. But I always look at things from the lens of making movies, liking to make movies, wanting to make more movies. And this is kind of a, uh, did Kylie say a masterclass? Uh, I, I echo that. There's so many innovative techniques. This man has a vision, despite all his flaws. He's just uh, blazing a new path. And that ups it a half a star for me, because you won't see another film exactly like it, even with all the imitators we've seen since. So... I have a really strong connection to this movie, and I don't completely understand why. The most recent time I saw it in the theater, a friend of mine called me at like two in the afternoon and said, the Wild Bunch is playing at the Arrow Theater tonight. You want to go? And I was like, let's go. Why not? And it's just always good. And it gets better and better the more that you know and the more that you feel what's going on and see different things. And you know who the people are at the beginning and who's the different characters and things like that. 
And, and another really interesting fan of the movie told me a story about one night she's watching TV and the Wild Bunch comes on and she calls her friend, the script supervisor, Haley. And Haley picks up the phone and goes, I know, isn't it wonderful? There's something really rich about it. And the icing on the cake for this movie is the last scene. We've been through all the violence, but the movie doesn't just end there, right? It gives you some chance to breathe. Grace, you mentioned the vultures coming in and picking over everybody. But then you got Robert Ryan, this aging movie star, sitting outside of the town as everybody from the town in this series of dissolves leaves, that essentially that shootout has led to the death of an entire Mexican village. That whole village is now diaspora at this point, which is really, really heavy. And then who shows up but the oldest wild bunch guy of all, the one that we thought was going to get killed in the mountains, was maybe trapped by the natives over there. But he's joined up and he's ready to join the revolution. And he offers for Robert Ryan finally to come and join him. And the line is, it's not like the old days, but it'll do. It's very similar to the ending of Treasure of Sierra Madre, which is, I think, a huge inspiration for this movie. A little bit like the ending of Seven Samurai, which I know is an inspiration. You know, Peckinpah wanted to be the American Kurosawa. Kurosawa would shoot action with three cameras. Peckinpah used six for the first time anyone did that. But I think that that is what makes the movie powerful, is that it really has something to say about the passing of time and what it means to age up in a world that's changing around you. So for me, it's a four-star movie. I knew it was going to be a little bit tough, you know? Uh, It's not a movie that is lovable from the jump. There are some lovable moments when the characters are laughing. But yeah, that's my feeling about it. I think there's a wonderful combination of thrilling action, you can call it violence, and really deep masculine emotion. So there's my four stars. It's in my top 10, just so you know. It's like number five. Well, if you want to watch The Wild Bunch, it's available to rent on Apple TV, on Amazon, YouTube, and Vudu. It often shows up on TCM and Max. Speaking of YouTube, you can find Film Generations there with clips and stills and on audio wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like our show, please, please tell your friends. Please rate and review so others can find us as well. Film Generations is an Electrocast production. I'd like to thank our panelists, Grace Chapman, Kylie LaRue, Guy Lewis, and of course, my intrepid co-hosts, David Tausick. Our executive producers are myself, Mark Netter, my partner at Electrocast, Peter Rafelson. Our producer is David Tausick. Our editor is Marcus Campito. Please join us on our next episode for a big change of pace, a 1941 screwball romantic comedy starring season one favorite leading lady, Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. From writer-director Preston Sturgis, it's going to be The Lady Eve. Will our panel of young film lovers fall head over heels, or will they just break off the engagement? You're going to have to find out here on Film Generations. Electric Acid. Electric Acid. Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies, and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress, and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. 
We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, the best business network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So, keep listening to Electrocast Podcasts and hear the culture. Electrocast.